Bibles to Luke chapter 11, verses 37 through 54 will be our text this morning. And uh, so Luke chapter 11, verses 37 through 54, as we continue our study in the gospel of Luke. And um, this is one of those passages of text that uh, really gets at the the heart of what got Jesus' blood to boil. It seems that when we look at the Gospels and we see the things that got Jesus upset, it seemed to be legalism and its sister hypocrisy. Jesus encountered people who disobeyed His commands all the time, but it seems as though legalism and hypocrisy were the two things that got Him going. And here we see Jesus get going. We do not see the meek and gentle Jesus that is so oftentimes portrayed. And He is that. I can tell you this, that the the one who is penitent, who comes to the Lord and calls upon His name, He will embrace you and take you. The one who is suffering, the one who is alone, the one who is in trial. Our, Our Christ, our Lord, is so gentle and comforting. And yet, when we are hypocritical. Perhaps we face the firm rebuke of Jesus. And so we come into this dinner setting. It's a meal setting. A, a, a Pharisee has, has a religious leader has asked Jesus to come and have dinner with him. And this follows um, a passage where um, there. Many had rejected his teaching, and now there is this dinner scene where Jesus is called with uh, kind of these high-ranking dignitaries who have invited him, come have dinner with us, and, um, well, things take an interesting turn at this dinner party. I would love to have been a fly on the wall, but I don't need to be because we have the account right here in the Gospel of Luke. And here Jesus confronts this idea or this sin of legalism. As I mentioned, it is the sin most addressed by Jesus and especially because it involves hypocrisy as well. So before we get going on this this text that deals with legalism, let me define what I mean by legalism and perhaps one of the best ways I can help guide us into what legalism is, is by first um, eliminating what it is not. So first of all, what legalism is not. Legalism is not an, an emphasis on obedience. Because Scripture calls us to obey God. In fact, the text we read in 1 John calls us to obey Christ. Who is the one who loves me but the one who keeps my commandments? So calling us as a church to obey the things, the the commands of Christ is not legalism. Grace does not free us to disobey God. Many times we hear, well, I'm not under law, but I'm under grace. But that certainly does not mean that you can live out your life in complete disregard to the commands of Christ. That's nowhere in Scripture. You are saved by grace. You are not saved by any favor or merit 
that you have garnered with God. You are saved totally and completely by God's gracious gift, by grace. But if you think then that frees you to live in a manner in complete disregard to the gracious God who saved you, well, that's not legalism. And as a church, one of the things we do is we try to hold one another accountable. If we see one another living out in a manner that is ungodly, we might put our arm around that brother and say, brother, sister. How are we glorifying Christ today? How are we living out the gospel? So legalism is not an emphasis on obedience. Here's another thing that legalism is not. Legalism is not man-made rules. It is not man-made rules. And so, um, for instance, parents, when you give your kids a curfew, you are not legalists. When you say, be home by 10 or 11 or 12 or whatever it is, you are not being legalistic. Likewise, a church is not legalistic when it has various rules. For instance, let's just say that this isn't a rule in our church, but let's just say we decided to adopt a rule that all the elders must wear slacks and a collared shirt, no jeans and no T-shirts. It's not a rule, but let's just say we thought, you know what, we should at least look our best. We should be set apart. Let's just say we say, that's not legalism. Now, if I were to say, you earn God's favor by wearing slacks and a collared shirt, now we would be talking something. So that, those two things are not legalism. Man-made rules, we've got man-made rules for lots of things. And that's not legalism. Nor is it an emphasis on obedience. But here's what legalism is. It is an attempt to gain God's favor or to impress our fellow man by doing or avoiding certain things without regard to the condition of our hearts before God. That is a rather long statement. I think it's in your notes. Legalism, then, is an attempt to gain favor. Notice this. It's an attempt to gain favor with God or to impress your fellow man by doing or not doing certain things without regard to the condition of your heart. And this is where Jesus went because legalism is, is external, an external belief that I can impress God on my own with my own merits, but somehow by my own merits, God will be impressed by me without a regard to the condition of the heart. And Jesus, in this text, is going to go after the heart. In fact, most of the things that are going on here, most of the things he condemns, it's not so much that, that what they're doing, it is the fact that they completely disregard their own hearts in these matters. So, pride is at the very core of legalism. Pride denies man's depravity and exalts human ability before God. Um, Pride and legalism opposes grace. And this is why I believe Jesus had such an issue with it. So let's go ahead. Let's uh, read our text. Um, follow along with me as we read Luke 11, verses 37 through 54. 
This is the word of God. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now, you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees! For you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees! For you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you! For you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear. And you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you. For you are you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses. And you consent to their, the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers! For you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. And this ends the reading of God's inerrant word. So this whole thing begins with a dinner invitation, and so Jesus often went and uh, dined with those who asked him. And the thing that kind of gets this whole issue started is that Jesus does not wash before the meal. He doesn't go through the purification rituals. Remember, the washing here isn't because of germs. I don't think they really had a knowledge of germs or um, that that type of thing. This was ceremonial washing. And there is a precedence in the Old Testament. There are some washings and some purification rites that are called for in the Old Testament. However, these things have gotten so elaborated and become so um, so involved that It was one of those things that the Old Testament mentions but never commands. And this is not a neutral issue. For the Pharisees, this was, they were dealing with purity before God. Are you right before God? You will demonstrate your rightness before God by going to the wash basin and going through the ritual purification before dinner time. For Jesus, however, it is adding burdens to God's word. I don't think that Jesus had a problem with the purification rite per se, 
but only with the fact that this was a demonstration of whether or not you were in right relationship with God or you were out of a right relationship with God. And sometimes, I don't know, this is just my idea, and I, and I got weird ideas from time to time. Sometimes, I think Jesus does stuff to pick a fight. I don't know that for a fact, but it seems like he knows the customs. He knows what you're supposed to do. He knows the, the social mores. He, and I'm sure that he has gone through purification before meals all the time, but this one he decides not to. Sometimes Jesus heals on the Sabbath. He could have healed them the day before or the day after, but he chooses to heal them on the Sabbath. Jesus, not so much that he's picking a fight, that's probably the wrong term, but he is using this opportunity to proclaim God's righteous laws and to expose the fallacies of the religious um, of the religious leaders of the day and to show what God truly demands. And so I think here he is using this opportunity and he purposely, again, this is my opinion, the text doesn't say so, he's purposely not washing because he is going to expose the wickedness of these men's hearts, bring it to the surface and call them to repent. This is not because he hates these men. Rather, he is bringing up these issues so that they would call upon the name of the Lord and that they would not perish. But that's not the way it goes. And so they are astonished that Jesus, well, actually this Pharisee is astonished that he does not wash first before dinner. And here we see this first charge, this first rebuke by Jesus. Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. In other words, you care much about outward purity, but little for the inward. There were these, um, I'm going to call them fly impurity rules. F-L-Y, fly. In other words, if a fly flew into your dish, it was considered unclean and you set it to the side. If a fly landed on your plate, it was considered impure and it would be set to the side. So they had these, these purity regulations that they were very fastidious about. And Jesus says, you're so concerned about the outside, but, but you neglect what is inside. And, and certainly this is an image that we can all probably relate to because we probably all had that dish, that plate, that cup where we forgot about it and it got left and it got nasty. And I'm sure maybe some of you parents, your kids have hidden the plate under a bed or under a chair or left in a room and you come in a week later and you're going, what is that smell? And you look around and there it is. And of course you don't eat out of that. You don't go and clean the outside and then serve it later. But you clean both the outside and the inside. But then this is Jesus' point. You guys are so interested in the outside, but you neglect the inside. And then he moves in and he moves away from dishes and plates and cups and moves to the individual. You're so, com so concerned about fixing the outside, but you're neglecting the important matters of the law. But inside you're full of greed and wickedness. 
and condemns an attitude that treats people as objects to be manipulated. And he begins to clarify that God is concerned about the heart. In fact, he goes on and says, God made the entire person. God's concerned about all of y'all. Every part of you. He's concerned about the external. But he's also concerned about the inside of you. And in fact, so God wants us to be, be right in, 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 enti- in our entirety. And so oftentimes in self-made religion, we fix the outside. You know, don't drink, don't smoke, don't run with those who do, that type of thing. And maybe those aren't bad rules, but if they are made without concern for the heart of the matter or the heart of the person, then all we've done is we've made a good-looking sinner. That's really all we've done. Sometimes I think Christianity has been reduced in our current day and age to just being nice and not offending or hurting anybody. I'm all for being nice. I'm just saying don't equate niceness with Christianity. I think Christians should be nice. Just because a person is nice does not mean that they've been born again. There are a lot of people who have never called on the name of the Lord, but they're nice. They may even go to church. So God has made the entire person. We can't divide ourselves into inner and outer selves or appearance and substance, private and public. God has made the entire person, both the inside and the outside. And then he goes on to this, uh, this statement that has been, that has had some difficulty with understanding, but he says, but give his alms, those things are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. And I think the idea is begin with the inside and the outside takes care of itself. And J.C. Riley writes this, he says, give first the offering of the inward man, Give your heart, your affections, your will to God as the first great alms which you bestow. And then all your other actions proceeding from a right heart are an acceptable sacrifice and a clean offering in the sight of God. In other words, if we get our hearts right, the external usually takes care of itself. I tell this story often, but it just seems to be so relevant. Now it's probably been 15 years since... I took this phone call. And here it is, 15 years later, still using the same illustration, but it's a good one. So I get a phone call. A guy's interested in coming to our church, and he has probably 30 questions about our church. I can't go into all, I don't remember all of them. But the one that stood out, he said, so what do you do about church members who go to R-rated movies? And I wish I was quick enough to say why we beat them, of course. Um, I wasn't that quick. I always think of my best ideas later, right? So all of my best sermon ideas or sermon illustrations, they come on Monday, right? So tomorrow I'm going to come up with some great sermon illustrations for this message, right? But uh, anyways, but I explained to him, I said, well, you know, I guess we could talk to, to our people about that, but my main concern is 
Our goal is to get them to, to love the Lord their God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love their neighbor as ourselves. I think if we get them to love God, some of those things really start to take care of themselves. I get people coming to me all the time, and they're saying, you know what, I was, this is what I was watching on TV or on the Internet or doing, and I don't do that any, anymore. It's like, you know what, I'm just, it's just not right. I just can't bring that stuff into my home. I just can't allow that stuff into my eyes. Not because I said, don't watch this. But because they're growing in their relationship with the Lord and their heart is being made more and more sensitive and the Holy Spirit is speaking to them and they're saying, no, I'm going to be cautious about what I take into the inner man and take in those things that are profitable, take in those things that are good. And this is where I think this passage is going. That is, take care of the things that are within the outside tend to take care of themselves. And then Jesus launches into these six woes. And woe is a cry of judgment. It is a cry of judgment in light of actions that deserve or demand God's response. And the first one is this. Woe to you, Pharisees, you tithe, mint, and rue, and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These things you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Basically, they're focused, they're majoring on the minor. They took great care in making sure that they tithed precisely. A tithe is basically 10%. So whatever their income was, but they went out into their herb garden and got every leaf and they divided it up and made sure that they gave exactly 10%. And got that little parsley flake and moved it over to God's side because that is exactly 10%. Meanwhile, they've forgotten love and justice. You'll note the charge is not against what they're doing, but what they're neglecting. Jesus is not saying, well, you shouldn't tithe or you shouldn't even be precise in your tithe. He's not condemning that action at all. He's saying that you're so focused on the minors that you forget to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself that you think by doing this little minor thing that somehow God is pleased with you, but you destroy your neighbor. And he's saying, I want you to do both. And then he goes on and he says, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. This is just pride of life. John talks about three great sins. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. This is the pride of life. You just want to be recognized wherever you go. You want people to say, oh, look at me. Look at me. I'm an important person. I sit at the best place. I'm noticed. I'm not saying that people may not notice you or recognize you or even grant you a great um, uh, a place of honor. Sometimes that's really hard when we when we go on on missions and um, we go to a missionary and, and we go into a church and, and they give us seats of honor, which is really nice. It's kind of I don't know, I feel awkward. They put us up on the stage and everybody can see you and you know and it's an honorable place and it's their way of saying, Man, we're glad you're here. 
I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. It's like, it's this idea of making sure that everybody notices me. Me seeking out the place of honor. Me seeking out the, the great place. And, and I kind of hesitate. I, I'll share this. I kind of hesitate. So we were at the... Um, Simone and I were at the helping out the bike race yesterday. And uh, so the announcer there, a guy by the name of Josh Mall, I remember Josh when he was just a kid racing. He was like 15 and racing, and now he's got three kids. And, but anyways, he's the announcer, and I hadn't seen him probably at least in 10 or 15 years. And I went up and I said, Josh, how you doing? My name's John Lake, and we remembered one another and, and all of these things. And later on, um, I hear the announcer say, <clears throat> start talking about, listen, there is a person here who has had great influence in, in mountain biking in Arizona and blah, blah, blah. And one part of me was, and he mentioned my name, and one part of me was just absolutely like, oh, let me go run and hide. But there was another part of me. There was another part of me saying, say more. You could have said more, Josh. You know more about me than just what you... There was a part of me. That's what I'm talking about. That desire to be recognized. That desire to be somebody. So yeah. I'm vulnerable. We're all vulnerable to being legalists. But God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. And then number three, the third woe. Woe to you. You are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without even knowing that legalism affects unsuspecting people. It makes them unclean without even realizing they are unclean. And so here's the illustration. The illustration is that to come into contact with the dead made you ceremonially unclean and you could not worship before God. You had to separate yourself so you could not come in contact with the dead or a grave. And what Jesus is saying is you are like unmarked graves and people unwittingly walk over them and become unclean and they don't even know it. They think they're right, but because of your corrupting influence, they are actually separated from God and they have no idea. This is the real danger of legalism because it makes other legalists who think they're right. And really, they're not. They're far from God. Pharisees think that they are leading to people to life and the people actually think they have life, but the reality is they remain condemned before God. This is a heinous sin. And this is legalism because it makes people think they're right. I'm following all the rules. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. And therefore, God must have favor with me because I have followed everything that I'm supposed to do. I look right on the outside. I smile. I say, praise the Lord. I got the speech down. I can speak Christianese fluently. All of these things. And God is saying, and inside you are filled with death. This is, to me, one of the true dangers of legalism. Well, I love this little interlude. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. In other words, we agree with everything the Pharisees are saying the lawyers, by the way, the lawyers aren't lawyers. They, they don't like necessarily go to trial and decide guilt and innocence. So they did a little of that. But they were lawyers. They were expert in God's law. 
They were lawyers, and they agreed mostly with what the Pharisees taught. And so this one lawyer has the courage to say, now, Rabbi. See, the lawyers were assuming they were righteous and had no need for repentance. And so now he's taking offense. He's saying, now, the things you're saying, this offends us also. I don't know what he thought Jesus would do. I don't know if he thought that Jesus was going to turn and say, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to offend you, just those Pharisees. Well, that's not what happened. All of a sudden, Jesus is looking over here at the Pharisees, and now he turns and he looks at the, oh, and you lawyers. Let me bring you guys into this as well. You're just as guilty as your cohorts, the Pharisees over here. And this is what you do. You load people down with burdens that are hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Legalism lays unrequired burdens on others, but not on themselves, and then the legalist does nothing to help. This extra heavy burden of religious duty that was not required by God, the word burden tears often to use to refer to the cargo of a ship. And so you laden people with these burdens that God has not commanded. And then you do nothing to help the person that you burden down. And a great example, you've heard of some of the Sabbath laws that, that go on. The goal was good. The goal was to keep the Sabbath. But the method became crushing. And, and he goes on and he says, the, the idea here is that you teach that there are many ways to, to offend God, but you are helpless to teach people how to please God. Here's your problem. You say, this is all you're doing to offend God, but not once do you say, this is how you can stand and live in a way that God is pleased with. All you do is tell me how I, you just heap on burden after burden You burden the people with demands and then you stand by and watch as the people are crushed under the weight of it. It's possible, also based in, on Matthew chapter 5, that not only did they put burdens on people and then not help lift them, but then we see the, hypo the hypocritical side in that they create loopholes that they don't have to follow. So they create a burden and for you but then create a loophole for themselves so they don't have to do the same thing. Kind of like politicians, right? They pass a law and then they pass a loophole in the law that you and I have to follow the law, but the loophole for them is so that they don't have to do the thing. that They're not required to follow the law that they passed, right? We are, we are incensed by that type of thing. That gets under our skin and we're like going, that's not right. That's what Jesus, that's part of what Jesus is saying. First of all, you put so many burdens that the people can't, help, can't even bear up under them. You do nothing to help them. And then to make matters worse, you create a loophole so that you don't have to do, you don't have to carry the same burden that you placed on somebody else. Woe to you lawyers. You're hypocrites. You're legalists and you're hypocrites. And God will judge that. Then he goes along. 
continues on and he says, he, he um, chastises their false piety. He says, Woe to you, you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you're witnesses and you consent to their de- the deeds of their fathers for they killed them. You build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. In other words, here's... I'll just kind of break this down and, and summarize it, try to make it fairly, condense it a little bit. There's a lot of stuff there. You do not submit to the message of the Old Testament prophets, but you build their tombs as though you honor them. He turns that around and says, your ancestors killed the prophet, prophets because they did not like their message and you're just simply finishing the job. That's kind of it in a nutshell. You say you honor the prophets, yet you, you reject those who inherit their message. The tombs you build are actually memorials of rejection that reflect your agreement with what your fathers did. The tombs you're building are not some sort of honor. They're, you, they're simply a testimony against you that you agree with what your forefathers did when they killed them. You say you honor their teaching, but instead you align yourself with your forefathers who killed them. And then we see this. The wisdom of God says, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. In other words, you're going to keep doing what your forefathers did. In the past, your forefathers killed the prophets because they did not like the message. Then God says, I'm going to send prophets and apostles and you will kill them. And Jesus, the great prophet, standing before them, and they are going to plot to kill him. They're just finishing the job. And Jesus is calling them out. Woe to you, lawyers. Woe to you. You are hypocrites. You are blind guides. And the thing you say that you honor, you don't. And here's the Lord of glory standing in your midst, and you're going to plot to kill me. And then you will kill all of my, you will seek to kill my, my apostles who come after me. Just finishing the job. That's all. You're just like your forefathers. You're no different. This generation basically will have to answer for the slayings of the prophets since this new group, the apostles, are going to preach the same message and they will be rejected. The, judge, the consequences of it are judgment. And then the sixth woe. Woe to you lawyers for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. Basically, um, you miss knowledge and you, you miss the knowledge of God and you mislead those who seek God. Legalism is an obstacle to others knowing God. The scribes have failed to know God truly and then they've hindered others from knowing God. Not only do they not know God, they make sure that you don't know God. So once again, Jesus pulls these things out. He's especially harsh with these people because they know the difference. Now, now we see Jesus encounter people who are, um, who are sinners and tax collectors, and he's not nearly as harsh with them. Oftentimes, because they know they're sinners and, and broken people. 
And he has mercy on them. These are people who ought to know better. And what is their response? Well, you would think their response would hopefully be, well, now what do we do? How do we fix this problem? Instead, they lie in wait for him to catch him in something that he might say. These are hunting terms. They are further committed to destroy Jesus. Now that he's spoken to us that way, first we didn't like him. Now we want to kill him. Jesus is the prey. And our goal is to hunt him down and take his life and silence him so that he is no more. So I'll kind of bring, wrap this up. This is <clears throat> one of those things. I, I guess one of the things that I, that I want us to be cautious of, I want us to be a church that follows Christ. I want us to be a church that, that lives our lives in obedience to the laws of God. However, I do not want to become a group of legalists that just demand things. And don't care about the heart. I pray that hearts are transformed. That, that when we talk about God's word and we pray and we, and we sing songs, that these are things that, that, that express our heart. Ultimately, that's where it's at. Christianity is a heart issue. It is one that's on the inside. And it transforms the inside. It transforms us from the inside out. I believe that we will be better people, nicer, more generous, giving, more loving, all of those things. I think, I think the outside of the cup is important, but we can't neglect the inside. I think if we get the inside right, the outside takes care of itself. But if all we do is focus on the outside, the inside remains full of dead, dead men's bones, unclean. So I pray that this day, maybe this week, we would examine our lives. Are there areas in my life where I look really good on the outside, but on, in, on the inside I'm not quite right? And maybe this would be a great week that we can come before the Lord and say, Lord, transform me from the inside. Make me, make me right with you on the inside. Let's start there. And I believe that the Lord will bring about various areas and situations to show you those things, just like he did with me on that announcement thing. Right? It's like, well, you could be, you might be a legalist if... Steal something from Jeff Foxworthy. You may be a legalist if, perhaps. I pray that, that, that as God exposes those areas in our lives where we are not following him, that we would confess them and make them right. And, and here's the thing. I also want to make sure you understand that in legalism, we try to perform certain tasks to make sure to, to, um, to garner God's love. But here's the thing. When you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. Not when you got it all fixed up on the outside did Christ die for you. But while you were yet a sinner, despising God, hating God, mocking God, denying God, shaking your fist at God, in that condition, the love of God came and demonstrated himself in the crucifixion and Christ bearing your sin 
come for you. So God loved you when you were a sinner. You do not need to prove or do something to earn God's love. He already has died for your sins. So we would just ask now that we would recognize that. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. If you've never called upon the name of Christ, I would urge you that this would be a great day for that. To see you come to know Christ. To clean you up on the outside. If you've been living as a legalist, as a Pharisee, as a hypocrite, well, all I can say is welcome to the club. Let's walk this life together and let's live out our life in Christ together and learn how to overcome this great temptation and live as with the inside out, with the inner man coming out to the outside. And we would love to be part of that. So Jesus, Jesus' heart is for inner transformation and it's contrasted with the religious leader's rejection. Laws are important, but they do not transform a person. Grace does. And let's call upon the grace of the Lord. Let's stand.